Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got two ridiculously funny people in conversation, Michael Ian Black and Jen Spira. Black, you hopefully know as part of the comedy troupe slash MTV show The State, or maybe from Wet Hot American Summer, or perhaps as the host of many podcasts, including Mike and Tom Eat Snacks and How to Be Amazing. On his latest podcast, Obscure, he's reading classic literature aloud and talking about it with funny guests. If that's not enough, Black has also been a prolific author over the past decade or so, writing collections of comedic essays and even children's books. His latest book, which came out late last year, is more serious. A Better Man is written as a letter to Black's son, and it's a thoughtful examination of masculinity and how to navigate the modern world's sometimes ugly expectations of people. Jen Spira just released her first book, the hilarious, often surreal short story collection Big Time, which is full of tales that often seem fluffy and fun at first before they turn darkly funny and delightfully weird. Spira was a writer at The Onion for four years. I had the pleasure of knowing her a little bit when I worked there before joining The Late Show with Stephen Colbert as both a staff writer and the show's announcer. She left that lucrative gig recently, you'll hear exactly how lucrative in this talk, to concentrate on her own writing, and it's paid off. Big Time is already getting incredible reactions, including from Michael Ian Black, who, as you'll hear, gushes about it. The two talk about their writing processes, how their significant others factor into their work, and a particularly pornographic sketch by Black's old comedy trio, Stella, which features Santa Claus, Mrs. Claus, and a dildo. If you've never seen Searching for Santa, fire up a private browsing tab and Google it. The fact that it's one of Spira's favorites will tell you something about her book as well. Enjoy the chat. I'll begin, Jen, with just a mash note. I love your new book. Oh my God. It's so funny. But more than that, well, equal to that, is it's just well written. And that's- that's what I like. That's what I like in books, that they're well written. Hey, look, any, anybody can write a goddamn joke, but can you string a sentence together? And the answer in your case is yes, you can. Maybe even two, maybe even two at a time. <laughs> Michael, I cannot tell you how freaking exciting it is talking to you about writing. Your writing has inspired me and been a guidepost for me for so long, starting with the stuff that was showing up on McSweeney's and then my custom van and then the two collections. My thing, that book that you read, which is my first one, it's short comedic stories, which I know is kind of like a literary redheaded stepchild thing, you know, and they don't seem to get a lot of respect. But I mean, yours are just some of my absolute favorites. I disagree with your conclusions, but (laughs) I'm delighted that you arrived at them. Mm. Can we begin by talking about your life? Where do you come from? Where'd you grow up? Oh my God. Okay. So I'm Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill, which people kind of know Squirrel Hill now because there was that temple that was shot up. Um, Fun. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we started um, there. My parents are like deep, you know, Third generation Pittsburgh. My dad has a big Pittsburgh accent. What what does a Pittsburgh accent sound like? I know Yins. Yins Gandana <laughs> Kennywood. Nothing is as disgusting as the Pittsburgh. Nothing. It's like a mix of Welsh, Polish, all this stuff. Yins Gandana Kennywood not. So I said, are you guys going to Kennywood? <laughs> Kennywood is like the Pittsburgh, um, it's like our six flags. It's 
It's mm-hmm. so awesome. Um, but so get, it, it's real slippy out, real slippy outside. Wash your clothes, you know, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. But an iron, uh, and it's like you know, Iron City, and they say iron, iron, yeah, iron. It sounds really yeah. poor. No, it it sounds um, specific. I wouldn't say it necessarily sounds poor. Yeah. Were you poor growing up? We weren't poor growing up, but my dad was poor growing up. They lived right on one of the rivers. You know, there, you might, there's a lot of rivers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I can name one of them. Really? The Allegheny. Very good, Michael. Very Thanks. good. Excellent. <laughs> I wonder if you've even heard of, we use, one of the rivers is called the Yakagany. And the spelling is the most insane, obs- okay, it's not even... But I've n- never heard of the Yakigani. Yeah, it's the Yakigani. Yin skin down in the Yakigani. Michael, <laughs> <laughs> there is that talent, that preternatural <laughs> talent that you can't hide. It is a bit of like a signifier if you have that accent, except that there are so many rich, because like in Pittsburgh and in southwestern Pennsylvania, there's all this coal money. And these people, they still have that accent. But my mom, I mean, my dad and mom, exact opposites from totally different sides of the track. I mean, my mom is like Jewish and fancy and my dad is Polish Catholic and not fancy. Mm-hmm. And so how did you, as a young Jen Spira, coming up <laughs> through the mean streets of Pittsburgh, where, where did you get the idea in your girl brain that writing... <laughs> And being funny might be something for you to pursue. I've read some of you saying this somewhere that I think I read that you weren't aware of it being a career. Um, no, not okay. at all. Yeah, super me too. My parents had no, there were no connections to anyone in showbiz. A distant uncle was the podiatrist to the stars. He lived in Beverly Hills and had different <laughs> celebrity clients, but we didn't even talk to that side of the family. I'm guessing that's the Jewish side of the family. Yeah, you're right, honey. That is definitely the Jewish side. (laughs) That's right. For me, even in high school, comedy was such a just a thing for the guys. It was almost like a a, a version of a sport that it. Mm -hmm. I really was picking up on the vibe that I was. It was so not for me. And like there was like a sort of fake onion in my high school. It was definitely all guys. There was not even the thought that I would apply. It's. It seemed so not for me. I wasn't one of those kids that like watched late night. I was not a class clown. Really, it was just sarcastic comments to a few close friends. And then the writing thing, actually, for me, in college, I started doing, like, arts journalism-y stuff. And then I was getting so jealous of the stuff I was writing about. And I was like, ugh, I would so much rather be making that or writing that than writing about it. And 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 the fact that my little nut was just coming up with a metaphor to describe someone else's book or movie, I felt blue ballsy about that. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered improv and then improv was like straight up just the the shoot that dropped me into comedy. Where were you doing improv? Before I went to college, I went to a women's college in Manhattan. A, a friend who was a year older than me literally like told me what improv was. He'd been in one year of college. He joined their team. I didn't even know what improv was. We, he he taught me games, like a group of our friends just played some games. And then I started doing stuff at UCB and just really doing their classes. And I was like one of those UCB rats when they did ASCAP, that free show. And I would like sit on a crate for four hours to get in. And I would see shows there like five or six nights a week, like a total wow. rat. Yeah. So you, you started out as a performer slash writer 
what was the transition for you to making that into any kind of career? After college, I moved to Chicago to just to do improv. And there wasn't more of a plan than that. And then the real break was really just getting hired at The Onion. And there was so much shitty stuff in between like 23 and I mean, in between 23 and 27, it was just a mishmash of weird little jobs and money hustling. I did do an MFA during that time, but that was straight up to just get student loans so I wouldn't have to do my jobs. Smart. Yeah, yeah, but smart, except that I paid all that back. And Not so smart. Jesus. I, I mean, when I started working at Colbert and I was actually making money, my husband would force me to like, one day I called and I put 50 grand on it. But it was getting hired at The Onion. That was my first full time when I was 27. Like, actually now my day job finally merged with what I wanted. For those of us who have no idea of how The Onion even Mm. works, is it a place that you go to? It's so funny. It's so, there's so much mystery. I know it's, it, it's, it's totally a place that you go to that looks like any startup. I started there when they were forced to move to Chicago and the staff was very upset about that. They had this, these gorgeous loft space right across from Balthazar and Soho and they loved it. And then, you know, to save money, uh, HQ was like, actually, we're going to put everyone together in Chicago. And so the writing staff, came from New York to Chicago, and I was, I think, the only person that they hired new to join. And so I joined them in a very dark time for them because they really didn't accept Chicago as a place to be and hated being there uh, in the beginning. But um, no, it is like an office. I was there for three years. It is like a Monday to Friday pitch meeting in the morning at 9 and um, notoriously is a very, very hard, competitive room. It was amazing. The people there are so funny. But but it's a room where there's not much laughter and there's so much rejection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm familiar with those rooms. <laughs> but it seems like your rooms are you and your friends. It seems like you're this little golden boy that just managed to like do it with your friends. Well, yeah, but that original room, which was the state, my sketch comedy troupe that I started in college and ended up, we ended up with our own TV show and that's how I started my career. That original room was a lot like the Onion Room. We were all friends, but it was ruthless and it was cutthroat and really competitive, not mean, just hard. Which is so cool being in a room with people that you respect and who you're really inspired by. That was the really cool thing about the Onion. Yeah, I talked to some of them and that's not what they say about you, which is crazy. (laughs) And I thought really inappropriate that they would say that. (laughs) Those guys are still my very good friends, but I certainly did earn a reputation for doing things my way. Like as soon as I sense for one second that I have a teeny bit of status, I abuse it. I got to learn how to do that. (laughs) Do you not? I always think that I have no status regardless of the circumstances. Oh, this Uh, is so funny, Michael, because to see your work and even to read your writing, it feels high status. You feel like someone that is really confident. Oh, God, no. You're not? Okay. No. A lot of times my comedic voice is that just because I I think I found that funny, mostly because it was so not who I am. 
I love that. Something I love about your writing is that I feel like David Sedaris does this a lot and you do it and you really mine fights, domestic fights (laughs) that you have. And it is one of some of your favorite lines like that you and your wife both love like fantasizing about divorce like it's a vacation and talking about divorce. And it's just so, I, I have a few questions. One, well, sidebar, I mean, I love asking my friends if they go on a vacation, what was the breakdown day? You know, when did it break down? And when did it, you have the horrible fight? And I can't believe that more people don't like to talk about that. I guess, I guess a little bit, you have to actually be in a happy relationship to freely Mm. enjoy talking about it. But I'm wondering, one, do you ever run these things by your wife? Like read this draft? Is this funny to you? Um, not really, because she she doesn't she doesn't care enough about what I'm doing <laughs> to bother with reading something. She doesn't give a shit about what I'm doing. You guys must have such a good thing to talk about it in that way. I generally try to make myself look as much like the asshole in any recounting of domestic squabbling as her. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't lay (laughs) my (laughs) shit at her feet. (laughs) Nor do I put her on a pedestal because I I think that's dishonest. And and it actually bugs me when people do that in their writing. They say, oh, what a a horrible person I am and look what an angel my partner is and all of that. And it's like, shut up. I try to be comedically honest, whatever that means about what's going on in my life. There's definitely things I wouldn't talk about um, in public without her go-ahead. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, like her alcoholism. I wouldn't even... <laughs> <laughs> I've loved watching you search for whatever it was going to be. <laughs> I went through a couple. I know. I was going through a couple. And then I was like, I really shouldn't say. Because I was going to do one. And I was like, you know what? I don't know that we're there yet. I'm going to let him... <laughs> Throw it out. <laughs> yeah, it took it took me longer than I would have liked. <laughs> you must have cycled through some really bad ones, actually. Yeah, you, I yeah. cycled through a couple of really bad ones before I arrived at, at a good one. <laughs> um, so you left the onion to go to Colbert. Were you furtively writing a packet while you were at the onion? You were like, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to write this secret packet. But no, but everyone was doing it secretly. Like, the, it would just be this little attrition thing where suddenly the editor would say, hey, after the meeting, you know, I'm actually going when John Oliver was starting, my good friend mm-hmm. Will. And then my friend Seth, when they get hired, they say, hey, I'm out. And no, it's, I, and it's funny, Michael. I mean, that stuff's always so secret. This, Like, when you're applying to jobs, what you get paid. I love actually knowing the deal and talking about it so what was the starting salary at Colbert for you? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was an amazing jump. Wait, I didn't know course, if that was a joke. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I look, I'm dead serious. Well, I don't know if you'll answer me. I will answer you, but I honestly <laughs> pathetically thought it was a joke because I was thinking it can't be that exciting compared to the people that he's talked to. I'm specifically thinking, and for anyone listening, if you haven't listened to Michael's interviews with David Sedaris for his podcast, his old podcast, How to Be Amazing, the one where you talk about money and you straight up ask him, how much do you make? And he answers you. It's... Yeah. 
It's insane. I mean, so yeah, starting salary at Colbert, it was such an amazing jump from the onion. Jesus, I think at the onion, I literally started at $35,000 where I think I said to them, hi guys, like I actually can't pay. Like, is there any way? And so then it got up to 65. And when I was making 65, I was like, hey, I'm normal. This is real. Starting at Colbert, it was like 200. And and yeah, so that's, of course, a major jump. And and then it does go up. It's like the good thing about working for those late night gigs is there are these cruise ships. They never sink. They go on. You can get old and die there. But it's not like when you worked in, in Scripted where there are these beautiful money hikes as long as you just behave yourself every season. So it's not yeah. really like that, but it, en- but it ended up getting to be a good amount. And then I also was wor- – I'm still working as the show's announcer and that was a separate salary. And so – that was a sweet little gig. But no, suddenly making money. Oh, so much humanity. So much beautiful humanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've you, always liked money. <laughs> you've <laughs> always liked money, but it seems like you do what you want to do, what you're excited to do. Is there ever been a money sellout moment for you? Yeah. Oh, oh, all the time. Really? Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. I have I have I have three criteria for accepting a job. And really, all I have to do is hit one of the three. The first is, does yeah. it? will I make a lot of money? Yeah. The second is, will I be working with people I like? And the third is, is it scary? And if I hit one of those three, I will generally take the job. What were the recent ones that were scary for you? The or- last book I wrote was, the only reason I did it was because it was scary. Because it's a serious book about masculinity. That's not the kind of thing that's going to hit the, will it make me a lot of money? Yeah. Mile post. And it's not going to be the, will I be working with friends mile post? Because I'm just sitting there by myself working on it. But it was certainly scary. Wow. That's really cool. I'm a little bit like you in that I've worked in rooms and I've worked alone. And you seem to really flip between those two things. When you have a book deal and you're working on a book. I'm wondering what your process is like when you have to motivate yourself and how much doubt still attends it for you, even though you have so much stuff under your belt. My process has evolved over the years, and I think I know what it is now. I wake up somewhere between 6.30 and like 7.30. I make a cup of tea. While the tea is cooling, I look at the news. I look at Twitter. And then roughly after I've been awake for 30 to 45 minutes, I start writing. And I will write for the next, you know, three to four hours. And then that's it. Because after that, it's kind of the law of diminishing returns. To answer your second question, the doubt is never ending. Um, And the only way I've learned how to deal with doubt over the years is to just persist, is to just acknowledge Mm. that there's doubt, acknowledge that what you're writing might be garbage and persist. Mm -hmm. What about you? What's your process like for writing your first book? Yes, I am going to tell you that, but just one follow-up question. When do you feel confident enough? What do you have to do with a draft to give it to your editor? Is there someone you show it to? Do you show it to Martha? Do you show it to a friend? It totally depends. Usually what happens is I'm over deadline. I think part of the problem with me in terms of doubt in writing, specifically prose writing, is that I have no training. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. My toolkit 
My toolbox feels somewhat limited. I'm trying to expand it. I feel like a fraud all the time. Oh, obviously I was digging and fishing and hoping that you would say that because that's the only thing that's reassuring to me is people that I know who have done it who say that. I love knowing 6.30 to 7.30. That's really nice and that's nice and early. I don't know if you have kids or not. No. You end up getting on a schedule with them. Right. And even when they're grown, which mine are now, um, you know, what I discovered about myself over the years of raising them is that I kind of like being up early. Totally. God, the, like the two times I've been up early, I was like, wow. <laughs> I was just like, holy shit, what if I did this? You know? No, Michael. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not one of those like... I. I uh, basically, for me, but it's been ingrained in me from the seven years in the in the Onion and the and Colbert. Actually, Colbert started at nine, which felt really not showbiz like. It felt a little mm-hmm. too corporate. The Onion started at ten, I think. But m- my deal, but it's so similar to yours. I have found that it's like most writers. They say it's that there's like a three hour cap of like the actual work that you get done. I basically had to figure out, I, I quit Colbert after four and a half years because I had I had gotten this book deal and I, I needed to finish it. And I was already like a year late in turning it in. I was like, gee, I really need to just focus on it. I, I was able to spend the next, it was really more like just like eight months, but that was my only job was just working. And I've never been more alone. I'd always been in these rooms. So basically I found the system where I would try to get there by 10. The New York Historical Society has this amazing coffee shop called Parliament. It's very close to my apartment. So I would go there. Um, and even so many things need to be right. I love ambient noise in coffee shops, but um, there's a million factors that need to align. And it all came together at, at this place. Like the, it, even the way that the, like my, there was like a bar underneath the the table and like my feet were on it in such a way that was like, it was comfortable. And it was what like- was your daily order? My daily order. And it got kind of expensive because I felt like I really needed to tip them a lot because like I was basically using it as my office. My daily order was because I follow the system where I'm like on the weekends, I gain four pounds and then I lose the four pounds during the week. <laughs> so I would get um, two boi- hard boiled eggs, Earl Grey tea, and then an orange. And then I would tip them so that they just didn't like hate me for sitting there for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I tried to do five Pomodoros. You know, Pomodoros are that. Have you heard about that? No, I don't know what that is. It's like a time management thing where you set your alarm for 25 minutes and you are only allowed to work for 25 minutes. And then you're supposed to take a five minute break. That's the only part I don't do right because I do, it'll end up being a 20 minute break a lot of the time for me. Sure. My goal was to do at least five Pomodoros, which is only not even two hours of full work. But mm-hmm. I found that if I could get those done, I I was doing enough work. I I would end up writing basically a thousand words a day. And then that was it. My other thing though that I have this, but a lot of other people don't. I have my my husband is a huge part where I show him. I I try to get it as good as I can. I show him. He's also in comedy. He's a writer, actor, and he's so good. And so he's like an instrumental part for me of doing it. Everything goes through him before I get it as good as it can be before I show it to the editor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nice that you have that. It's lucky, but I have to, I, I've, as I've had more and more work to show him, like our relationship deteriorates. And so I really need <laughs> to choose when I do it because this could, this could spell, this could spell disaster. I, I realize. And does he do the same for you? 
with you? He does. I really love when I can do it for him because then also I know that I'm storing up these like bucks that I can then spend. So I constantly have to try to replenish the coffer because I drew from it a lot and then it, it, it was too much. Yeah. When you think of your marriage primarily as transactional, <laughs> I think that is the best way to approach it. <laughs> I know you're kidding, but I guess, no, that is, but it is, it's so true. But it's like, I realize when I'm super in debt to him and then I try to just be like, so like, can I do anything for you? But have you ever collaborated? I definitely would say that the book, this, my first book is a collaboration with him in terms of him being such a hands-on editor. Um, But in terms of real stuff, like in Chicago, we used to do this thing where we were these married middle-aged sex therapists and we would like do these watercolors. I mean, for like shows, (laughs) we, oh, we've done so many shows and musicals in Chicago together, like a gajillion. I, I don't even, it's funny, they don't even seem really like legit I mean, I, I, for my MFA thesis at Northwestern, I wrote this musical where it was Sherlock Holmes investigating the Jack the Ripper murders, and it was incredibly broad Mel Brooks kind of stuff. And I mean, he was one of my leads. He's, and, and he's cast me in shows. It's, I, I don't think my wife and I could survive a creative <laughs> collaboration, uh, even, even decorating our house, which <laughs> we were talking about before. <laughs> I really had to. I really had to uh, relax my grip on that. Wow! Because she's she's much better at it than I am. You had the wisdom to do that because, from what I can see and what I have seen online, she was right, and you were you would have been wrong, wrong and you would have yes. really fucked it up. Yeah, she does very good work, but I will vehemently disagree with it right up until the moment that it's done, and then be like, "Oh yeah, you were right." <laughs> that's, so, that's so funny that you haven't loosened up and you don't learn to trust her. I have loosened up okay. and I do trust her. Okay. But there are times where I will vehemently disagree. <laughs> no, we had a months long argument about a couch uh, this past year. Oh my God. Here's what happened. I'll give you the abridged version. <laughs> when the pandemic started, I'd been playing a lot of poker over the last year or so. And I had been gathering my winnings in a drawer and uh, thought when the pandemic started, hey, I'm going to take these winnings and buy a piano. Oh, my God. So, Because I wanted a piano for a while. Because I, I play ter- terribly, but I, I wanted a real piano. So I bought a piano. Yeah. And then I felt so guilty for buying the piano. The piano took up a certain amount of space. That it bugged my wife because then the couch next to the piano wasn't sized correctly. I was like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign up for Cameo, you know, that that service where you save things. And I'm going to earn enough money to buy a couch for you because I feel guilty (laughs) about the piano. And And then we fought for months about what color the couch should be. Michael, it's her decision. It's her freaking, it's the couch because you did your piano. That's what we were fighting about. That's that's pretty much the end. And then I ended up getting my way. Really? Well, she got the couch she wanted. I got the fabric that I wanted. That's so cool that you won enough to buy a freaking couch. <laughs> you, well, Michael. I won enough to, play a, to buy a piano. I earned enough <laughs> to buy a couch. Saying happy birthday to strangers. <laughs> that's... Oh, that's how many did you have to do? Oh, I don't know. Like, but I've a done thousand? a lot. I've done, no, <laughs> I've done over a thousand of them at this point. Oh wow! But it's so amazing. It's so easy. It's just like you just it's you just get money. 
you just get money. But I like it. I thought I would think it was really corny and dumb. Yeah. Um, but then I thought like, if I'd been a kid, just as an example, if, let's say I was like 13 years old and somebody had sent me a video cassette of like <laughs> Potsy from Happy Days <laughs> wishing me a happy You're birthday. So- can you imagine? Wait, now I understand it has never been brought home to me emotionally like that because I'm thinking the same thing of someone that I would have cared about. But here's the thing. I didn't even like Potsy. But if but if Potsy had fucking said happy birthday to me, are you kidding? No, you're <laughs> so right. If DJ Tanner for me said happy birthday to me, I would I would kill myself. It, it would just be the end of my life. And uh, I like to think that I'm Cameo's Potsy. But... <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> it turns out Potsy's actually on Cameo. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I'm impressed that you play poker. It, it's such a, to me, that's such a silent, masculine, like, thing to do online. I assume you're talking about online. No, I would go like once or twice a week to, <laughs> to the MGM Springfield in Springfield, Massachusetts, oh which is God. not close to me, by the way, <laughs> um, and sit in a room for eight hours playing poker. Did you make friends? No. You don't make any friends with those guys? Well, I become friendly with them, but I'm not, I I mean, I hate to sound like I'm a contestant on The Bachelor. Yeah. I'm not there to make friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm referencing your story big time. Oh boy, thank you. Um, Which is so good. And is the uh, capstone... Is the big finish. Oh my God, you read it? Yeah. You read the last, oh, Michael, thank you. Yeah, that is the big finish. I mean, it's a big story. I don't want to scare people off, but I think it is a novella. I'm just looking at page count. Yeah, I mean, I'll call it a novella. It takes up fully a third, no, a quarter of the book. There's so many funny lines in it. Oh my God, I'm so glad you think so. That one I I was nervous about, but excited about. There's so many, but there was one that was making me laugh because it was because it, uh, for for people who are listening, it's about. Can I say what it's yes, about? Yes, please. It's about uh, a actress, a depression era actress, who gets flung forward through time to our existence, and but her vernacular stays pretty consistently in that sort of 30s wisecracking Hollywood broad. Um, vernacular. And <laughs> when you mash that together with sort of today's, let's say, kombucha-fueled culture, it's really hilarious. I don't know how much of those you made up or how many you sort of found elsewhere, but there's so many of them that are just like really funny. Oh. Making lard pie, was that one of them? And I was like, wait a minute, what is the making lard? Oh, and, and that's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> oh wait, that actually just is, I really just meant making lard pie. Wait, did you think that was a euphemism? Was oh, you thought it was a euphemism like for shitting or something? Oh my God, shit. that's so funny. Michael, no, I, I really freaking meant she's making a lard pie because <laughs> she's like, a, that's how she makes pie. But you're fucking disgusting. And now- <laughs> That's great. No, no, making lard pie. You know, it's so funny. Actually, all of those euphemisms, it's just crammed with them. I I mean, not the euphemisms, but her vernacular. I did, shockingly, I did make pretty much all of them up. But Oh, wow. I didn't realize it'd be that easy to do. But once you kind of get in the swing of it, they just (laughs) freaking flow. In terms, 
in terms of actually just as a writing tip, film noir movies and film noir fiction like straight up Raymond Chandler, specifically the similes in even a B or D list film noir movie, just, they are, it's such good writing. I would also say that my friend Adam Resnick is an incredible um, essay collection called Will Not Attend. They are memoir essays. It's incredibly funny. But he, like me, we we love these pre-code films that those really messed up, fucked up before they had the rules. The, the content is incredibly grim and depressing. And he loves that stuff. So he read that story and he gave me, I've never, like, it's your fantasy when you give a friend something and you're like, hey, do you have any alts? Do you have any thoughts? He came back and I slotted in his sentences. I just slotted wow. them in. I mean, only maybe like three, which made me feel really cheap. Where is he in the acknowledgement? He's there, honey. He is there. And I hype his book. I talk about how much I love his book. Oh, there it is. And Adam Resnick, whose hilarious book, <laughs> Will Not Attend, is a constant inspiration. It's not a lie. It's yeah. not a lie. Yeah. Um, well, the book is so good. There's Thank so many you. funny stories in there. Thank you, um, Michael. I'm just encouraging people to read it. When does the book come out? Book comes out. Thank you, Michael. March 16th, 2021. Mm-hmm. Are you planning on returning to TV world or are you going to, you're going to stay out? I want to stay in short story slash maybe novel world forever. I want to also go to TV world and hopefully just keep both going. There, there are some stories in this collection that I think would be really f fun having second lives as features. Maybe some of them have the legs to be a series. So there's there's just a few that I'm excited about that I'm kind of, there's already some sort of, you know, stuff going on to maybe turn them into other things. But I want to do both because Michael, tell me if you think the same thing. And we are, you know, we're nearing the end. For me, working on a book was like, I've never had this freedom and I've never really been the boss. Like, so this was mm -hmm. the first time that it was like the buck stops right here on the staffs that I was on, I ended up being the person who would, would push something too far. Would It would be too dark. It would be, oh, don't like, don't ask Jen if that's okay. She's <laughs> she's going to say it's, it's okay. So this was like, even for me sussing out, ooh, what is too dark? Or when do I have to rein myself in? I don't know. I almost feel like it changed my DNA. I've become free and I can't really go back to being under the yoke when you're making that beautiful money and when you're working with great people. I want to always stay in books because I just love that. For you, if you could only write the books, is that what you love the most? I think my experience is similar. I love hanging out with friends for work. I love making money at work, as we discussed. Mm -hmm. I also, I find I get really deep satisfaction out of writing prose um, that I don't always get from writing, you know, TV. I don't know why that is. It, it might just be ego because I know I'm doing it by myself and I take full ownership of it. Also, I think for me, the fact that I do feel like such a fraud, it's like playing the piano. When you start playing piano as an adult, like you go through, they call them grades, grade one, grade two, grade three. And I feel like every book that I've written, I'm sort of increasing my ability like I do on the piano. I, I, I like that process. That is so, that is so cool. Is there anything from your early writing that now you don't stand behind or 
you can't read because you're like, I, I'm sorry, I just don't like that anymore. I'm like, ugh. I don't look back. I don't read old mm. stuff. I don't watch myself perform mostly because uh, I find it too painful. <laughs> I derive no enjoyment from it. Whoa. Okay, one thing that I noticed that you do that I'm so impressed by is in the comedy, you have these incredibly poignant moments that are never corny and that are always just actually really satisfying and deep. Is that what a tool that has deep, that has like gotten stronger for you or like what? Um, a lot of it has to do with learning to trust my voice and to listen to my voice. One of the things that I have often cautioned young comedians about when they ask, and they don't <laughs> ask that often, um, when they ask for advice in comedy, is to respect yourself enough that you do what you think is funny. And it's not always easy to know what you actually think is funny or what you think other people will think is funny. That's sometimes really hard and it continues to be hard for me sometimes as a writer. So I feel like I'm getting better at identifying for myself what I think is funny and or worth putting on the page. When you get to that level where you can choose what you're doing, figuring out what you actually think is funny and interesting... Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, when you're writing for a show, when you're writing for Colbert, you're writing for Kimmel, you're writing for, you know, whoever, um, you have to honor their voice. That's what your job is. Yeah. But when you're sitting there and you're, and you're writing a stand-up set or you're writing a book, your job is to satisfy your voice. Yes. And you have to be able to identify what your voice actually is. Speaking of your voice, I assume you still collaborate sometimes with David Wayne and Michael Showalter. When it was really just you three, what was like the specific Michael... Michael Ian Black flavor. It was probably similar to you, which is the dark <laughs> stuff where where people are where I'm going. I don't think that's too far. I think that's right. fine. Right. And people are going, yeah, I don't know, Michael. <laughs> like I'm not sure if you should be sucking Mrs. Claus's cock. Michael, thank God you brought that up. Okay, now you are referencing an incredible sketch called "Searching for Wait, Searching for Santa." Searching for Santa. Searching yeah. for Santa, and that was Stella. It's so funny, and I I recently rewatched it. I think it's just as funny as I did when I first watched it. And I am wondering, don't break my heart. Do you still think it's funny? I haven't seen it in years, but yeah. She, okay, thank God. What would kill me is if you said, is if you disavowed it in some way. You know? Oh no! Why? Well, be okay. Be I mean, you go. I mean, it's the three of us. We go to the North Pole <laughs> looking for <Yes>. Santa. <laughs> Santa's there, and then in the end, we suck his wife's cock. Okay. I mean, okay. what's not to like? It's there is one scene when you when you do the thing when you're like my eyes were a little too big for my tummy. You probably don't even remember. It's a lot. I you do said. remember that. Yeah. There's just something like so anarchic about that sketch and and the way that it. I have to say, okay, one thing that I just respect about it so much the way that it embraces in an almost John Waters like way tastelessness. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like is something that I think that I really see because I think I like tasteless art, you know, sometimes, but it seems like it's, see, it's so smart. It's, it's, it's aware of its tastelessness in a way that I feel is so often dismissed and people, and then really scares people from doing it. Cause you don't want to be like basically a pariah who just does this <laughs> tasteless thing, but it will, it goes, so, if you haven't seen it, 
any listeners, it goes so far. <laughs> it goes so <laughs> far. Michael, you should rewatch it to see because it's graphic. It's graphic sex. Oh, yeah. It's pornographic. <laughs> it's pornographic. And I'm actually thinking, <laughs> but I'm just thinking of other things that, things like that that really stick the landing. In And and it's in, there are so many examples. It's like that. But I'm even thinking of something we were talking yesterday because you have that amazing podcast, Obscure, where you read Jude the Obscure and now you're reading Frankenstein. And mm-hmm. I am a little annoyed that Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre didn't win because I, whatever, Frankenstein will be cool. But even in something like, Tess of the Gerbervilles, another hearty one. It's a blowout ending. I mean, like any blowout endings and stories that stick the landing and ratchet up the stakes the whole time. I mean, that's such cool storytelling and that's in Searching for Santa. Oh yeah, no. The work we did sucking Mrs. Claus's (laughs) cock is comparable to Thomas Hardy or any of the Brontes. (laughs) You're right. No, you're right. You make a really good point. Oh, it's it's so close to my heart. It's really close to my heart. I'm so glad that we ended on that. Well, I feel like we did stick the landing with that. For sure. We really did. Yeah. Um, the book is called Big Time Stories by Jen Spira. I recommend it highly. Uh, constantly sticking the landing. Thank you, um, Michael. Constantly raising the stakes. Um, I'm thinking about Monster Goo. I'm thinking about Monster Goo right now, which just goes, it just starts uh, at a place that you're like, okay, I know what this is. And then it goes someplace that you have no idea uh, where it's going. I'm and it really makes me laugh. Oh, I'm so glad you think that. Yeah, that's the, that is the Goosebumps inspired story. And yeah, I, it, it did, it did shock me where it went. It, it really goes pretty darn far. <laughs> Yeah, which is Uh, great. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time today, Jen. It was really fun talking to you. Absolutely. Ditto. Such a treat. Thank you, Michael. You are so welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to Jen Spira and Michael Ian Black for chatting. Check out their books if you haven't already. And if you like what you heard here, follow the TalkHouse podcast at your favorite podcast service. This episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell. And the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.